This is 112BK coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, as temporary protected status for Haitians and Central Americans in the U.S. ends, how are Brooklynites responding? Hi, I'm Brian Vines, filling in for Ashley Ford. Get well soon. Thanks for joining us today. As the Trump administration moves to end TPS, that's temporary protected status, for over 300,000 immigrants spanning from Central America to Haiti to Northern Africa, we sit down with two experts who are on the ground fighting for the legal rights of those under threat. And BRIC's biennial exhibit, Open Call, Truth, gives over 100 local artists a chance to speak their truth through visual art. We'll talk to one sculptor whose work can be seen in community gardens throughout the city. All that and more coming up next on 112BK. Coming up on the show, Brooklyn's Haitian and Central American communities react to the administration's move to NTPS. That would be the Trump administration's rules. But first, these things. One of the busiest transit hubs in the borough might be getting a makeover. Broadway Junction, the iconic, not to mention rundown subway stop in East New York, home to the A, C, J, M, Z, and L trains, where about 100,000 riders pass through the junction every day. And according to the folks at the New York Times, city officials want to make it a destination with offices, stores, restaurants, and other amenities, an upgrade that would surely be welcome. But as with all things in Brooklyn, improvements won't arrive without increased concerns over increased gentrification. Local officials are trying to address these concerns with commitments to affordable housing in the neighborhood. We'll definitely keep an eye out on that one. And last week, NYCHA gave city housing residents with children under six, including hundreds living right here in Brooklyn, very short notice that they were gonna test for lead paint in residences. They said they tested previously, but it turned out they didn't, though they told the feds they did. And now they are. And if you're not home, that's okay, cause they're gonna let themselves in anyway. And if they break your locks and have to replace them, that's okay too. You can pick up your new keys at your local police precinct. Happy Monday, folks. More on the DNA info and Gothamist saga. This time, some good news, or at least kind-hearted. The company that runs a co-working facility in Park Slope is offering membership to former employees of the now-shuttered sites for the low, low cost of $1 a month. The cost for the space at Park Slope Desk can otherwise go for about 100 to 350 a month, but their generosity doesn't end there. They're also extending the offer to those working at any local publication. It's so nice to see this belief in and support for local journalism. So get out of your pajamas and go down there. We'll be right back. Over the past few months, the Trump administration has announced the termination of temporary protected status, TPS, for certain immigrants. First, it was Sudan, followed by Nicaragua, and most recently, Haiti. The move would potentially put over 300,000 immigrants and their families at risk of deportation or detention. 
These are folks who have, in some cases, been in the U.S. for decades and now are under the very real threat of losing their homes and communities. Here to talk to us today about the consequences of this policy's expiration on Central American and the Haitian immigrant communities, right here in Brooklyn, are Ann Pillsbury from Central American Legal Assistance. Thanks for joining us, Ann. You're welcome. We're also happy to welcome Nanaj Raoul from Haitian Women for Haitian Refugees. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a lot. It's a lot from a person who campaigned on building a wall and changing immigration. But I wonder, just in a very real sense, are folks who are on the rolls for temporary protected status now on the ICE hit list? Is that the situation we're facing? I mean, I think that um, reversing some of Obama's executive orders was the whole point of stopping DACA, ending DACA, and ending TPS for the various countries. And we can expect for other countries with TPS for it to be ending. And that's what they said they were going to do. Yeah. But um, what's more important is that all of these folks are part of a larger group mm -hmm. of people that don't have permanent status here. And what really makes sense is to have a permanent solution instead of having these temporary programs. Yeah. that keep, we keep having to wait to see. People, are living, people that have TPS are living in limbo and have been living in limbo for many years, mm -hmm. and they don't know, you know, they, they live in fear that it's going to end and that they're going to be on the hit list yeah. once it ends, you know, and that's the fear that they have to live in. They have to make real decisions, like are they going to have to leave their family members here? By the summer, that's the clock is ticking it to July. On the country, yeah. yeah, for Haitians in this country. So for Haitians, it's um, July 2019 right. now. It was going to be January 22nd yeah. of 2018. So. so looking in the context of outside of Haiti, in particular in some Central American countries, they have a longer history of being here for temporary protected status. How did that begin? Well, actually, it began, the whole TPS program began when Congress got frustrated with the then Reagan administration's refusal to end military aid to El Salvador, mm -hmm. where there was enormous human rights abuses. And so Congress, to, to force the issue, created TPS right. initially for the Salvadorans. And then subsequently, both Republican and Democratic administrations have added on other countries as they have experienced natural disasters. So right now, we've got 300,000 people with TPS, and mm -hmm. it looks like Trump is going to pull the plug on all of them. But um, and for this, the Salvadorans are the largest group. There are 195,000 in the country, and followed by the Hondurans and then the Haitians. But the important thing um, to keep in mind is that, although it's inhumane to take this population that's been here legally working, paying taxes, not committing crimes, or they couldn't stay in the program. For decades. For decades. And suddenly throw them back into being undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. But the reality is they can't deport them without putting them through immigration court. Right. And the immigration courts are already backed up three years. So from a practical matter, you can't just click your heels and have all these people disappear. They're part of our community, they have legal rights here, and they're gonna be here. So the real answer is mm -hmm. 
comprehensive immigration reform, which is the reason TPS has been renewed so many times, because most people expected that to happen. That's right. And that's still got to be the solution. So looking at TPS as a whole, you mentioned that it was created sort of as this stopgap between the money drain that was happening from the U.S. back then, and they made something that's lasted a few decades now. But it started with the need for human rights, really, in terms of disaster protection. So let's talk about the conditions in Haiti that folks are going to be going back to, presumably, this summer. Is Haiti ready to receive all of the folks who were here under a temporary protected status? What are the conditions like? Well, Haiti, um, TPS was granted to Haitian nationals right after two days after the um, earthquake right. that devastated Haiti on January 12th of 2010, and um, that killed over 250,000 people and and displaced many more. Right. So not every you know, it took. I think 10, well, they looked at 10 years after Katrina in New Orleans, and only 5% of the houses were rebuilt. So you, you can imagine for Haiti. Still the poorest country in the Western world. And yeah, for many reasons that US policy has to do with, but that's another story. And so then, um, so, so certainly since then, we've had other disasters hit Haiti. We have natural and man-made disasters. And um, the, the, most recent big one was last year, just over a year ago, mm -hmm. Hurricane Matthew, that wiped out a lot of the crop in the s southwest of Haiti, yeah. which provides for the whole country, for, for me most of the country. And um, it's, taken, it's gonna take some time you know, to recover from that. So Haiti still hadn't recovered from the earthquake, and then we were, we've been hit with, Haiti's been hit with a series of of um, natural disasters, yeah. as so well as man-made. None of this is happening in a vacuum. If people were here because of TPS, because of that devastating earthquake that happened in 2010, and there have been subsequent natural and man-made, as you said, disasters following that, we also have to think of that larger picture of immigration and comprehensive reform that's needed. What happens to kids who were here and were born in the interceding years, whether they're from El Salvador or from Haiti, what becomes of their status? Well, as immigration will very glibly tell you, it's up to the parents. Hmm. Obviously, they can't deport U.S. citizen children. They can deport their parents. Right. And then immigration just shrugs their shoulders and says it's up to the parents to decide whether to take their children or leave them behind. As a, as a legal matter, people who have been here over 10 years and have U.S. citizen children can sometimes apply for legal permanent residence, but right. that's a long and complicated process. And as I said, many of these people are going to fight it out if they have to. So at the moment, there are about 630,000 cases in U.S. immigration courts right now. Are all of these children of people who've been living and working and paying taxes in some instances for decades now going to have to get in the back of that queue to say, hey, I want to stay with my kid who's an American citizen? Is Absol that what we're facing? Absolutely. They'd have the right to do that. All right. So the need for comprehensive immigration reform seems to keep pushing itself to the front. But in the meantime, what are people who are getting their affairs in order for this July to do now? locally, how are our electeds reacting? So there, there are some bills now that would, um, that are proposing to cover people with TPS with a, um, 
with a pathway to permanent residency. Mm -hmm. We're looking for, and, and Congress can act on this, and they can come up with a permanent solution for this. And that's what, um, there's a national TPS alliance that um, is working with both Central American groups and um, Haitian groups, groups um, um, from Africa, including, and there's also Nepalese, every, just everyone who has TPS across, over 300,000 actually, mm -hmm. um, if we count all the countries that ended even before, remember last um, May, there were three countries, they weren't large numbers, but three um, countries in Africa, the countries that were struck by Ebola, yeah. that um, their TPS ended. That was Sierra Leone, Liberia, and what's the third one? Sorry, I can't. Sierra Leone, Liberia, yeah. and um, Sudan, maybe. No, it wasn't Sudan. So the three countries that were struck with um, Guinea, mm -hmm. Guinea, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so they're also included in this National TPS Alliance, and we're really pushing for um, for Congress to pass legislation that would give permanent residency. There's um, Nydia, um, Representative Nydia Velasquez, um, Yvette Clark has been working on some bills. There's um, a Carbello bill, uh, Carlos Carbello out of mm -hmm. Florida has a bipartisan bill. So we're trying to get as much um, bipartisan support. We've been going back and forth to D.C. and doing local organizing and advocacy as well throughout the country with right. all the groups combined that are participating. And we've worked closely with the um, Haitian community in Florida, and as well as Central Americans from throughout the country. And um, the, next week, there's going to be a, a big push in D.C. for that as well. And these are folks with TPS that right. have been organizing to self-advocate and going to legislative visits to, to share their stories with Congress members. Can we just talk about the chilling effect for a minute? Because there's lots of stuff we can talk about, laws and the back and forth of congressional orders and stuff, but what does this do to the community when you've by rights done everything that was asked of you? You signed up for this process, you've been paying your taxes, and really living the life here. People have started businesses, put their kids through school. What does this say to folks who've done all the things the right way that now it's like, all right, time to go. They almost can't believe it. It's very, very disheartening. We have a young man working in our office whose parents have TPS, mm -hmm. and he have qualified for DACA. And this is a lovely family. Right. And now they're looking at all becoming undocumented again. It's just, it's stunning. They just, they don't quite know how to wrap their minds around it. People try to go on about their daily lives, but in the back of their minds, they're always thinking, this could be the day, am I just going to get snatched up? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think ICE is going to make them a priority yeah. in the long run. It would be a tactical error for them to do that. But for the average person with TPS all these years to suddenly find out it's ending, it's, it's like they don't know what to think. And it's very hard to counsel them what to think because this country has never been this arbitrary and capricious in how we've dealt with immigrants before. Yeah. And now it's if anything goes. We just don't care what's decent, what's human, what's fair. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and especially in New York, where immigrants have felt at home and have yeah. felt accepted in New York. And so it's hard for them to understand the animosity that exists in some communities outside of New York. Yeah, Ninaj, these aren't the thugs and rapists and criminals that some would have you believe that are all coming to leech off of our country? Well, we have staff and volunteers that, that have TPS, and they have to make, their families have to make really hard decisions right now. And these folks include um, 
the uh, working class folks that are supporting not only their families here, but their families back in Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about remittances in all of these countries, not mm -hmm. just Haiti. Um, that's going back there to support many families back home. But um, we have college students, we have recent college grads um, that are working with us, and we have um, college students that have to, that were here on scholarship, that were, that were um, going to school on scholarship, that are finishing and they have to worry about whether or not their education is going to be interrupted. Mm -hmm. It's been a, a long-haul just to get to the point where they can get in college because they had the challenges where they were, they were not eligible for financial aid, right. as, such as the DACA students. Um, it's, it's the same for the TPS students, but now they have to worry about losing their, losing their status and will they be able to continue, will they be able to work once yeah. they have their degrees and so forth. But most of all, the most difficult is will their families have to separate because you have people that have been living here for decades that have TPS. Even though um, Haitian TPS was only granted in 2010, at the time, there were people that were living here for over 20 years in some That's cases. Right. Um, you, anything from people that came just after the earthquake to people living over 20 years, and therefore they have children of those ages. And now they have, some have never been to Haiti before, never lived in Haiti, yeah. and they have to. And they came out in droves to get this protected status that was offered. So did they make a mistake? Did the people who were living in the shadows in cases for decades before the earthquake who said, all right, this is a chance to become official. And a lot of folks urged them to do that. Yeah. Initially, people were afraid to come out. You yeah. know, I'm sure Anna tell you the same in the first round of TPS for whatever country. I remember that. People are going to be afraid. And it wasn't until the second round when it was reinstated for Haitians in 2011 that you saw people more people really, coming out. Yeah. But only for survival reasons, right. you know, for survival. It's not that they're, they never, people st never stop being, living in fear when you have TPS. Yeah. So now that I have both of you here, the T in TPS is temporary. There's no way around it. So what is the best case scenario from your respective points of view as to what can happen to all these people who've been here for a long time or whether you just arrived? If people are saying temporary protective status means temporary, so you can't depend on it to live your whole life, what's at the end of the road for you two as you see it? That's the legislation that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, legislation that would create a statutory path for people with TPS for many years right. to apply to become green card, green card holders, lawful permanent residents. And it, it wouldn't be that big a leap. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, these are people that have been vetted, that have paid taxes, that have no criminal records. The secret is they've been here and living and so, doing and paying the entire time. Yeah. This would not represent a radical shift in the fabric of America if the folks who've been temporary would be citizens. No, not, not citizens, just well, it, initially, permanent residents. Initially permanent residents, yeah. and in five years down the road they would be eligible for citizenship. Right. But um, it's just what makes sense, you know, because these people, it, it would be a loss. You know, like I said, we have people in, our Haitian, in the Haitian community that that um, have TPS that are contributing to the community in many ways, mm -hmm. that work in community organizations and to support their, themselves and their families and their families back in Haiti, paid tax. Um, there were surveys taken with folks with TPS, both um, Central Americans and Haitians. Out. They, 80%, over 80% of them are working and paying taxes, yeah. which is higher than American citizens. You know, it's a higher rate of employment than American citizens. Yeah. So it would be a loss in every way to, to truly end um, 
TPS status for those, not just TPS status, but to leave these folks to end up out of status. It just wouldn't make any sense yeah. in any ways. And then there's a larger group of 11 million people, you know, that are out of status and which we were joined, you know. So it, it's when we talk about comprehensive yeah. immigration, we're talking about, you know, the larger group because this is, these, this, these folks are in our community. Right. You know, we have to look at the larger 11 million people. Look at DACA. You, you, if you come up with a solution for folks with DACA, a permanent solution, what about their parents? Exactly. You know, what about, remember there was DAPA and that was killed earlier. Yeah. Folks with TPS, we have a lot of people with TPS who has family members. We at Haitian Women for Haitian Refugees have been working for the past two years with folks that have been coming up from um, Central and South America, yeah. the Haitians that have been living there, that were there after the earthquake, primarily wow. in Brazil, but other countries as well. And some of them came to join their family members here that have TPS. Right. You know, so we really need to look at the whole 11 million people. That's right. Comprehensively, as mm -hmm. you said. That's what comprehensive means. So it's our last minute, literally. I want to start with you, Anne, and hopefully can get both of your voices in on this. What should folks do now? People are scared, people are questioning, should they begin their affairs in order? Is there gonna be some Hail Mary that keeps people here, but really in a real world, since we sit here in November, what should folks be doing if they have TPS status from Haiti? What, what I urge people to do is to talk to their employers, because in many cases, these are valued members of small businesses, big businesses, and ask the employers who are U.S. citizens to contact their Congress people. Mm -hmm. They've got to organize and help fight the fight. Meanwhile, they just need to stay calm and <laughs> carry on and, and hope that this country comes to its senses. All right, we're getting our stamps and letters together. What should we be doing in our I just want first for folks that, uh, Haitian folks that have TPS that just got the news last week that's gonna be terminated, do not go to any of those unauthorized immigration practitioners to, um, there's, well, let's wait for the regulations and right. there will be places where they can go for free, legal services where they can go for free. And we'll be sharing that information with them. But meanwhile, we're urging folks with TPS to come forward and join the organizing efforts to self-advocate for a permanent solution. There is, um, some of us will be going down to Washington this weekend to join the National TPS Alliance for um, a training where folks can participate in part, um, legislative visits later next week and ongoing because this is going to be a long fight to get a permanent solution. But as Ann said, we urge people to contact their Congress members, get their employers to contact, and, and there are ways. I understand people are afraid mm -hmm. to come out of their TPS, but there are ways to work around that where they can, their voice can be heard and, and make a difference in getting a permanent solution. That's good advice. You can definitely find out more at each of their respective organizations. I want to thank Ninaj Raoul from Haitian Women for Haitian Refugees and Ann Pillsbury from Central American Legal Assistance. Thanks for being here, ladies. Thanks for having us. My name is Musa Hickson. I'm a sculptor and installation artist. As far back as graduate school, I've been very interested in um, circles, ovals, bubbles, egg shapes. You know, their connection to the universe, you know, the earth, the sun, how gravity, I guess you could call it surface tension, dark matter within the universe naturally forms things. Everything is being pushed towards a circle. 
you know, slowly. We don't see it, but that's why it bubbles. Everything ends up being circles. That was Musa Hickson in the studio and the community. He's a Brooklyn-based sculptor and installation artist who is one of over 125 artists selected to be part of the 2017 Brick Biennial exhibit called Open Call Truth. The show's on display right now at the Brick House Gallery, but only through December 17th. So you got a couple more weeks to sneak in and see it. So how do you define truth? With alternative facts in a country split in half, at least at the polls, each side consuming news that's sometimes contradictory. Now more than ever, truth is the subject, and Brick Biennial Exhibition hopes to paint a larger picture of that theme. And here to talk about his work is the artist himself. Please welcome Musa Hickson. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So we saw you at work there, lots of sparks flying, lots yeah. of thoughts moving around in your brain. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the role of public art now more yes. than ever. Do you see it as evolving with the current political situation? Or what do you think the role of public art is now? Um, for me, I've always wanted my work to be of the space and not just in the space. So I think when you're, when you're producing public artwork and interacting with communities, there should be a relationship where you're understanding what is really needed in that space and how your work can enhance the space, work with the space, and be of the culture of that area, you know, not just plunking something in the way, right. you know. Um, I think the current political climate is really inspiring a lot of people to become more personally active, um, to actually take it personal and, and see that there is a role you can play mm -hmm. in um, making various changes. So there's some hard truths that artists often force us to look at. Yes. And we talked about the way that people see truth now and just mm -hmm. what it means. So I wonder about this sort of pressure from the public mm -hmm. on artists, especially in the public realm, when you got, what, the Raging Bull statue downtown <laughs> facing off with the little girl, or yes, yes. people just have ideas about what they want in their community. Mm -hmm. How do you come down on that with artist vision versus the community saying, this is alien to us, we don't want this? Well, um, um, as a sculptor, I went, I went to Pratt and I was trained to, you know, to produce sculpture, working in metal and wood and plastic and all kind of different materials. Yep. Try not to work in a lot of plastic, though. <laughs> um, um, I was familiarized early on with how to build work at, at a large scale. So some of my work is smaller, like the work here, but I do have public artwork here in, in New York and outside the country also. Um, over time, Doing that and also doing my nonprofit work, interacting with communities, um, I've been able to develop methods of getting information actually from the community. So, depending on the project, I may go and interview members of that community. I'll go to their community board meetings, um, show them images of, of work that I've done in the past, even collect images from them sometime. You know, um, I'm working on the Fairmount Art Wall project. Um, in Newark right now, and I've collected images from the community. They're going to be part of a collage that's kind of integrated into, into my wall sculpture. So yeah. um, there's a lot of ways that um, a public artist can endear themselves with the community, can um, interact with the community appropriately, can take that information from the community and kind of, um, kind of have a marriage between them and what it is that you're doing. 
um, it takes a little bit of um, trying, <laughs> you know. It takes like a, any marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, you, you're going to have to put a, some effort into it and have a certain kind of method. Right. But in the long run, I, I feel like that way the work is of the space a lot more. So speaking of, of the space, we know that you are very of note for some of these large-scale things that you're working on, some massive sculpture, but the piece you selected for brick, it's a standout, but it's not the huge Musa Hickson experience that some people might be expecting. Yeah. Well, I think there was a size limit they had. Okay. Because <laughs> I actually, um, I paint also, and yeah. I, I had a large painting, you know, maybe of five maybe four foot by five foot painting that I wanted to display. Mm -hmm. But there's over 100 artists in the show, fantastic artists. Yeah. I, you know, I feel um, happy to be able to show alongside them. Right. Um, but they told me that work was too, too large, you know. So it's I like said, well, I have a wall space. Yeah, I said, I have a nice little piece. You know, you can sit it on the floor. You saw it you yes. in process in the package that we ran just yes. earlier. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so the, of those smaller works, um, mm -hmm. the curator actually chose that piece. Awesome. Yes. So back to the Brick Biennial, what does it mean to have a space like this to work with other artists mm -hmm. in Brooklyn who are often fighting for space, fighting for their existence, trying mm -hmm. to keep their heads above water, mm -hmm. to have a space like Brick where you can work and be recognized and be among community? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, um, as an artist, we're always um, looking for spaces and opportunities to produce our ideas. You know, as a sculptor, space becomes even more of a challenge because you're not just working on a two-dimensional surface. So you need space around your space, you know. Um, so any opportunity where um, organizations like Brick give artists a, the chance, you know, to experiment, you know, and experiment in a, in a space where they're going to be around a lot of other creative people that are helping to share ideas with them, enhance their work, yeah. you know. Um, or even just a space to work and show, you know. Space to work and show, but also a space to see, because I'm here every day of my life, because it's my <laughs> gig. But how do we get folks who are from the community, who are often reflected in the work that's downstairs, mm -hmm. into the space to even see themselves? I know that you're out there working with young people and exposing them to art, but mm -hmm. what's the bar to entry to really make people know that a place like Brick is free and open and even welcoming and encouraging of your input here? Well, you know, it's a, it's a cultural and family process sometimes. Um, I was exposed to museums and theater and things like that through my mother, who was a, a, a creative-minded person when I was young. Um, the not-for-profit that myself and a few other community artists started called Brooklyn Art Incubator some years ago, now we're doing mentorship with kids that are in foster care. And one of the things is, I take them to all the free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I take them, I mean, this is New York City. Such as brick, uh, free stuff. <laughs> yes, and suggested donations. Yeah, yeah. You know, so they're, they're going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Brooklyn Museum of Art, or if there's events at, at Lincoln Center that are affordable. And I found that in the long run, um, exposing a child to that um, sees in the long run, they're going to see themselves as in those spaces, and those right. spaces being spaces that are for them also. Okay. But then it'll also kind of um, affect the choices that they make long term when they're thinking about career, they're thinking about ways to interact with their own communities. Phenomenal. So in our last minute together, I'm going to give Musa Hickson, the man who's creating young culture vultures all over <laughs> Brooklyn, a chance to plug your organization and get folks to come down to Brick to see your work as well in our biennial. 
Yes, yes. Um, first of all, um, Brooklyn Art Incubator. We've been around since about 2002. We've been taking art classes into community centers and schools, but a lot of our recent work is working with kids that are in foster care. You know, so we're doing social work mm -hmm. slash mentorship for kids that are in foster care to kind of enhance that situation. Um, I definitely want people to come down to see um, our current exhibition, the current biennial here at Brick. Um, fantastic artists, over a hundred and uh, over a hundred artists. And um, thank you, thank you very much. Enough said. So that is on display through twelve seventeen. That's December seventeenth. Musa Hickson, thank you so much for being here, sir. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up today's one one two BK. Thanks for joining us and listening in. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. Bye now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Haugesek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.